0: colonialism Colonialismus? What is that Was ist das Aufzeigen aufklären Aufbruch Decolonial Classroom unser Podcast für euch unser von dem Zusammenschluss da dekolonial Aufbruch
1: yeah, thank you for being here with us today Bonjour and in Et kleine de says yemi o is a little nestly Hi my name is Mia I would say that the turning point for me learning what it was and how it affected me
0: all right uh thank you so far this was the first part of this interview to listen to the rest of this podcast check out our spotify page
1: things that I should say I've said but it's it really does need a magnifying glass to really understand it.
0: Wow um and would you say that at least the Canadian education system does anything to teach the children about that horrible past?
1: So what I would say about the Canadian education system is that they paint themselves in a pretty good light. Um, Like I mentioned earlier This is seen as Canada's dark past Canada's dark secret because when you think of Canadians you think oh maple syrup moose polar bears um, saying a being polite being kind That's considered the Canadian stereotype. It's not the same for us. It is not the same for us. There's almost two completely separate Canadas. One of them is the Canada that everyone lives in. And then one of them is the harsh reality of what Indigenous Canada looks like. So that's, you know, being... Like, it's... I can't even explain to you the racism that goes on and the racism that continues to go on and, you know, the lack of work done to to exterminate that problem of being just targeted. So here in Canada, education is mandated by each province or it is, you know, the criteria is managed by each province. So each education minister will determine what the children will learn. Um, some are really good for learning about indigenous heritage and the indigenous background. However, I have not experienced learning about it very well. Um, all of the experiences that I've had throughout the education system, which I've just recently graduated from, is you know that the settlers came and hands were shook and, treaties were made and it was all very kind and it was all very peaceful and the indigenous people fought for the settlers and you know they became friends and um that's why you know like we are seen as the in the narrative of the education system is that the european the europeans are you know where time begins pretty much. They don't really speak about our traditions before uh, settlers came because they don't know, they don't care, I don't really understand it. It's this idea that we were just the sidekicks. We were the ones that, you know, helped them learn how to farm and we became friends and we started trading and, you know, we gave them furs and tools and, you know, we, we took their language because it would be easier for them to speak English. There's this narrative that, you know, we are very weak-willed people, that we were just, oh, other people are here. Okay, you guys you guys get the right of way, take over. It's fine with us. Our culture doesn't really matter. It's like, indigenous people were thriving. They were, you know, we had math, we had science, we had some communities had charted stars and learned how time had passed we had incredible meetings and we also had incredible wars and we also had incredible alliances we were a complete society within ourselves but because we didn't <laughs> wear dresses and skirts and, and do the things that colonizers did we were seen as savage and and idiotic and stupid. And it was, there's this idea that indigenous people were just fine with being colonized, that we agreed to it, that we didn't fight back, which is a bold, blatant face lie. When chiefs had to sign away their land, what would regularly happen is that they would be kidnapped from their people, taken into you know, settler territory, and starved. They would be starved and threatened. They would say, we'll kill all of your people if you don't sign this treaty. Or another way was that they would get them incredibly intoxicated or get them on something, and they would say, sign over this treaty, and we will give you next to nothing. These people didn't know what they were signing away half the time, or if they did, they were forcibly done. Some chiefs died trying to protect their land. Many people died trying to protect the land. And it wasn't, there was this idea that maybe we will not make it, but if I protect my people and my land, then that'll be all that's worth it. However, the Europeans had guns and we didn't, um, I would say that that was a very big, very big turning point because at one point there was a partnership and there was, there was a give and take, but it, it leaned towards being a lot more giving for us and a lot more taking for them. Um, and that's you know, they don't talk about that in school. I've never had someone really talk about the effects of colonization today. I've had plenty of people say, well, why do your people all drink? Why are you all alcoholics? I've had people say that to my face. You know, I'm not racist, but I just want to know why, you know, you guys are bad parents. I've had literal people either message that to me because they're too afraid to say it to my face. Or they literally come up to me and say, well, why are you all alcoholics? Why are you all drug addicts? Why is it that the only people who are indigenous that I see are all homeless and beggars. A lot of that trauma in itself of me having to answer those questions, because that is traumatic, a lot of that could be you know, avoided were it said in school that trauma and mental health, which is severely deteriorated, usually turns to unhealthy coping mechanisms. That, that a simple statement like that would erase a lot of confusion. However, it's not said, and it's very frustrating. I remember a good example of this would be for me in 11th grade in social studies class, um, we were learning, we, did, we learn about indigenous things, but we don't learn really. They'll say, oh, well, this is what they did at contact. They signed away their land, and everything was very happy. Um, That's what I heard in school. It definitely wasn't the same way that I felt as a person. You know, I didn't feel like as though everything was taken peacefully. But um, I remember in school, we were told um, when Frenchmen, and native women fell in love and got married, they had kids which were named the Métis. Now I've, I haven't explained the Métis so far, but the Métis is pretty much a completely separate um, identity under the umbrella term indigenous, which includes first nations, Inuit and Métis. So those are three different groups, all with different you know, rights within the eyes of the Canadian government. And, you know, it's it's a complicated, tricky process of labeling people, which I don't understand. But um, the Métis are a separate society, a separate community. Um, they developed their own language, which was, you know, kind of a riff on French, kind of a riff on Iro- like the language of the Iroquois. And, you um, They had their own dances, music, traditions, costumes, ceremony. You know, they, when, and they were born out of the settlers coming to North America from the beginning. You know, just because someone's half native and half white doesn't mean they're Metis automatically. The Metis were, you know, made from a different community coming out of the Red River settlement, which is here in Winnipeg. And so, They had their own language culture, but that's the thing that frustrated me the most was that I remember putting my hand up as soon as my teacher said that, and I said, that's wrong. And he said, what do you mean? And I said, indigenous women and French men didn't just, you know, marry, have kids and say, okay, that's fine. We have a new culture now. That's a lot of raping and pillaging that he had just not mentioned at all. And that's the narrative like i said it's that everything was very peaceful and there was no violence no aggression no resentment and things were done you know properly they were not done properly at all not whatsoever so that's my frustration one of my deepest frustrations is knowing that i that my people are constantly misrepresented whether that be in the education system or in the media it's really just it's a, it's a struggle because you want to see people who look like you and who have values like you but you're just you know you're just a dirty indian so and also canada doesn't talk about us if you were to see you know like other countries they talk about their indigenous people a bit. I've met with people from other places like Japan. I've met with people from places in, you know, South America or from Europe. I've met people who lived in Great Britain, which was the place that, you know, owns Canada, and they know nothing about us. I've met Americans who thought that native people were Like, was like, it wasn't a real thing. I've had, I've met Americans, literal Americans who are my age, who've said to me, oh, I didn't know you guys still existed, which is not, (laughs) which is not true, but it's also done on purpose. You know, Halloween costumes that depict us, or, you know, in movies and media where we still, you know, they still make it seem like as though we live at a teepees or igloos and we still you know we don't do those things we'd want to sure but we can't do them anymore um because but that's what it's that, that's what it does having us as mascots it it makes us seem as though we are not you know real people who are alive and breathing and existing despite everything that they've done to make it so that we weren't so the school system is very frustrating to say the least. They're doing more, but they just certainly didn't do anything during my mother's time. And they did very minimal during my time in this school. I have friends with little siblings who are saying that, you know, they're learning how to say numbers in Ojibwe and Cree. And I almost cried learning that. So I still don't know those, but um, you know, that wasn't done without a lot of work a lot of hard work in by indigenous activists. And, you know, it's, it's really, it's really good to see now, but it's not very common for them to continue the appreciation out of elementary school and into middle school and high school. So the school, school system failed us in many ways. Um, I believe they're trying to do things now. I can't, completely verify that due to the fact that I'm not in kindergarten but um yeah it's there's always more to be done in these types of situations
0: um so you
1: told us that in the pyramid the man stands above the woman so there already should be like connection of feminism and anti-colonialization um so as what do you define this connection what does it mean to you That is really, really, oh, okay. I'm really excited to answer this one. Um, So when you see the way that women and men are treated throughout history, it's a huge, huge gap, whether that be the wage gap, whether that be rights, freedoms, abilities, um, you know, decisions that are able to be made about your own body. You know, those have always been held by the men. um, And it's been fought for by the women. Um, Let's take the example of voting rights. So when you think about, you know, voting rights for women, you can think about the, the women's suffrage movement. So that was the mid 19th century, I believe. And so you think of, you know, women in their dresses saying voting is our right. We have the right to vote, which is very true. But there's also the disparity between when we're white women allowed to vote and when we're women of color allowed to vote. Um, This really just blows my mind whenever I think about it because my father was born in 1962. So that's quite a couple years ago, right? 1960 is when Aboriginal women were allowed to vote in federal elections. That literally blows my mind and not in a good way. Um, it, I, I, I really don't understand it. Um, and the Inuit, the entire Inuit people weren't allowed to vote till 1950. It, it when you think about those things about what women's suffrage is and women uh, demanding the right to vote, that is all within the colonial society. Sure, like I've stated previously several times, different indigenous communities held different beliefs because they had different origin stories or they had different morals uh, depicted as their origins. So um, the first being created that was human was a man, but that was not held against women. That was not something that was held against women. If anything, women in Indigenous society have frequently been depicted as Mother Earth. You know, that's something that People say a lot, but Mother Earth and things like that. But that was something that was very, very true for us. There was the idea that because women were able to give life and were fertile, that made them just like the Earth. And so, like I said, people put Earth to a very high standard, which meant that they put women to a higher standard. They respected them. You know, a lot of them were members of their, like high leading members of their community. We had, I don't think calling them uh, indigenous transgender people is the right term because, you know, different tribes had different names, different tribes had different ideas, but the terms two spirit is something that indigenous people have, you know, like a lot of people like to fight against, oh, well, native people, they didn't have anyone who's gay, didn't have anyone who was you know, a man, but then turn into a woman. Like, they didn't have anything like that. No, 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 no. We did. Um, I don't know why people don't like to talk about it. I know why. It's because they're homophobic. But um, there's this idea that, you know, indigenous women are seen as lesser than. But another important thing to notice is that there's this... uh, There's this idea of the man going out to work and the woman staying at home. We did that for a reason. It was because the women could fight and also take care of the children, but the men, you know, if there was no women in a community, the community would simply die. You know, there wouldn't be the community anymore. But if all the men died, the women could still go on. That was the importance of having women stay behind rather than go out and fight wars and things like that. Because if the men died, you know, <laughs> there's going to be more that come along. But if the women died, the, there was, where was the community? Um, I'd like to connect this with my previous statements about the uh, MMIWG, the missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. So that is a very emotional thing to think about. It is very emotional um, topic due to the fact that women are very important. They are incredibly important in Indigenous society. When I visited the Haida people, I remember I spoke with a man and he said, oh, well, you guys are from, uh, Manitoba, right? Are any of you Cree? And some of them put their hands up because they were. And he said, oh, well, I'm Cree too, but I don't call myself Cree. You know, I am Cree, but I don't identify as Cree. And we were all like, what? Why? He's like, oh, well, my mother's Haida. We said, okay, well, can't you be Haida and Cree? And he said, no, that's not how it works here. We run under a a matrilineal line. If you don't know what that means, that means that whatever their their mother was, that's what they were. So because his mother was Cree, he said, well, I'm Cree, but I don't identify it as it because my mother is Haida. And that, I remember when I heard that, I was like, oh, my goodness, that's amazing. That's so cool. Um, and then I got sad because I thought, okay, well, I wonder what my culture and traditions do. I don't know. But um, what The difference between, like, let me explain this. Decolonization and feminism are, like, intertwined. Because you cannot decolonize without lifting women up. You cannot decolonize without erasing the idea of what you know, a proper couple look like. If you wanna say that you're decolonizing, but you're also homophobic, I really don't think that you're decolonizing properly. If You wanna say that you're decolonizing, but still think that women should work for men and do everything in the household for men without being asked, then you are not decolonizing. It's a many different faced things, but it's, um, women are extremely multifaceted and able to do many different things which is why they were so honored and revered in Indigenous culture, pre-colonization, might I add. But when I think about things regarding Indigenous women and our, our respect and our power within Indigenous communities, it's really what drove me to look into feminism because I saw the way that elders were treated. And a lot of the elders that I've met are, women, and they have been wise, and they have been kind. And most of the time, I've seen indigenous men and indigenous elders, let them lead the way. So looking at those, you know, acts of love and, you know, respect was really what pushed me towards looking into what feminism was. Because I saw that, and then I saw how I was treated in school, and how I was told that, you know, girls aren't allowed, girls don't have ADHD, which they do, I have it, or girls aren't allowed to play sports or be big, which I play sports and I'm 5'11. Like it's, it was many different things I was told that I wasn't allowed to do. And then when I looked at Indigenous people, I was told that I was allowed to be anything that I wanted to be and that I could be anything, which was really empowering for me. So, I think it would be incredibly ignorant and completely beside the point if one were to look into decolonizing and not look into what feminism was or what it meant to be Indigenous women. The attack on that in today's society, of course, is the MMIW crisis, which it is a crisis. Women, especially for me, I'm able to look at it in a different light. It's scary. One, I'll give you a statistic. It's by the Native Women's Association of Canada. And it says that between 2000 and 2008, Indigenous women made up approximately 10% of all female homicides. However, when you think of that statistic, you're like, oh, 10%. You know, that's not, you know, incredibly huge. It's different when you think about the fact that Indigenous women make up 3% of the total female population. We are... It's not that we are more vulnerable than non-Indigenous women, it's that we are targeted. You know, I'm... For me as an Indigenous woman, I'm 18 and I just graduated and I was more likely to be raped than do that, statistically wise. am more likely to be killed by my domestic partner than to be successful within a career. It's certainly another thing. It's when you look at those statistics, that's when it gets scary Um, for me, especially because I have done many presentations about it in school, trying to educate others. And also myself, I've, you know, really had to experience a lot of different things regarding that. It's, gets difficult when you try to explain a concept to others where they really just don't want to learn. They think that we are killed at at higher rates due to the fact that we're weaker, which is not true. (laughs) That's not true at all. We're literally targeted and people will search out different ways. It's really upsetting to talk about. Um, I have friends whose family members are gone because of it. I've You know, met people who are just walking around broken, feeling that all the women in their community are, you know, at risk all the time. My grandma, who is a non-Indigenous woman, always instilled that fear into me about not going out late at night or going to certain areas because of the fact that I am a Native woman. She doesn't want me to go to America because of it. She thinks I'll go missing and no one will look for me. She's very afraid for me, and I'm very afraid for myself. But if I were to live in this constant fear of not being able to do things, then, you know, I would never leave my house. In fact, like, the place where I live, it's down the street from a place where a girl was taken. I have girls from my school who have gone missing. You know, I've met people who I've just never seen again. But the dangerous thing about this is that we don't have any really accurate, statistics, even the ones we do have, are probably underreported due to the fact that police mm. don't care as much, I guess. I don't really know how to put it, but it's it's definitely the feeling that, you know, when I was younger, I was really afraid of me going missing and no one would look for me. So the importance of feeling safe and protected comes at a very high value, but it is not very... Freely given. I, can, I don't really have to explain the the difficulties of the police force and uh, people of color, but that's that's another thing that gets in our way of justice and of being believed. Yeah, it's really difficult to talk about, um, but it's really important to talk about. Yeah,
0: thank you for getting so detailed and personal two there. Um, We would just ask you another question uh, of how the COVID-19 crisis maybe starts a whole another aspect of uh, injustice.
1: Okay, so um, yeah, that's really good to, that's another way to bring it into the today perspective for other people, but um, COVID-19, like, A lot of people are really, really scared right now. And, you know, they're afraid that they'll get sick and they'll leave their families or their family members will get sick. And it's horrible. It's very terrifying. But this pandemic isn't the first one that Indigenous people have gone through. I think that when you think about it in today's perspective, that when you think about it in today's life and how afraid people are and how many safety measures or precautions that they're taking. We're taking these measures because we know what we're fighting. Because we know what we're against and what's, what's happening. That's because it's being reported in the news constantly. But um, it is just people didn't have that. There's been many different you know, ways that we've died from sickness. When I went to Haida Gwaii, I had met with this girl and she said, my grandfather was the chief of this island because we were touring different islands. She said, he was the chief of this one. But when smallpox came, only five people left and he was one of them. And we were like, only five people left? What do you mean? Was there 30 people living here? She said, no, this island would have held up to 500. So disease is a horrible deadly, ugly, scary thing. I've heard lots of different things about disease and how it's truly affected us, and it's very frightening. But, I think one thing to look at is that we're still here. You know, there's this idea that I can't even tell you how many times, indigenous just people have had to be afraid of disease. Whether it's constantly been something to worry about within our communities, even today. So, this isn't the first one that we've gone through and it's not the first and it's not the first one that we're going to survive and it's not going to be the last one. It's not going to be the last one that we're going to survive. But um, for me to speak about how COVID-19 has affected the communities is pretty difficult due to the fact that I am displaced from mine. Um, like I said, my mom was part of the sixty scoop, so we do not live on our traditional lands or I don't live on my traditional lands. I live in Treaty 1 and I'm from Treaty like I think 8 or 7. Sorry, I don't remember. I've never been there, but it's in Northwest Territories. So that's I don't know if you guys know geography-wise, but that is about a province or two over and a whole province up. So it's in one of the northern parts of Canada and I am in one of the most southern parts of Canada. It's incredibly far, and I don't know anything about them really, because of the fact that they are so remote and small. Um, I think like there's like fifteen hundred members of my band, um, and I don't know anything about them. I think I th- like three people live on reserve, three to five, and when you put that in perspective to like different bigger reserves here in Manitoba, I think my friend, my friend's from Peguis um Chief Pegwest Reserve and it is like there's like thousands of people who live on that reserve. They have like a McDonald's, I believe. Or I know front some my friend from Norway House in northern Manitoba. They have like a KFC. I think my reserve has like a hunting shop and that's it. Maybe a hotel. That's really like it. Um but I don't know about what's going on in my community, because I've never been there, so it's hard for me to speak on how they're affected by COVID-19, it's also difficult for me to speak on how my friends' communities are affected by it, but at this point in Manitoba, I think the communities that are most affected by it are the colonies of the Hutterites. They just got tested, I guess, like a couple of them, and they're all positive Like a lot of them are positive, so that's where the majority of our cases are happening. Can uh in Manitoba, we've kind of died down in COVID crisis. We're getting our second wave right now, but it's still not as bad. As it is nearly as bad as it has been in other places of the world. But if I were to speak properly on it. It would be, I would be doing an injustice if I didn't speak about the Navajo Nation. So, the Navajo Nation is in uh, America. So, I've never met anyone who's Navajo, but it's a pretty big nation, pretty big community that spans over many different reserves. But they have had a crisis with um, COVID 19. I believe, I read this report in May, which said that the Navajo Nation had surpassed, like, New York State, the entire state of New York, for the highest COVID-19 infection, race, infection rate in the U.S., which is, a it, it's just another sign of how, like, COVID-19's, it disproportionately impacts minority communities and communities where, you know, they have little to none resources. It, I'm pretty sure Navajo spans over like Arizona, New Mexico, and Utah. There's also different ones. It, it, it's a pretty big nation territory. They have like I'm pretty sure every like a hundred thousand people or so. There's over two thousand cases, and I'm pretty sure the difference between. How Navajo Nation has more than New York State was that at that time, I think New York had like under 2,000 cases, and the Navajo Nation, every 100,000 people, had like 2,300. So, if anything, what COVID 19 has done is it's highlighted our issues, the ones that Indigenous people have been screaming about, begging about, you know, doing many different types of activism about regarding. Um, lack of resources. You know, I have two uncles who were adopted out of northern Manitoba and they didn't have nurses in their, in their, on their reserves. So they had to be flown into the city so that their mothers could give birth to them. If you can imagine living in a place where you are surrounded by people who are from your culture, who are deeply hurting and lots of them may be alcoholics, lots of them may be drug addicts. Many of them you think of as family. Um, you don't have good education. And if you do want to get a good education, you will have to be displaced from your community and live in the city. I have numerous friends who have had to do that. One of my best friends, Emily, she is actually from a reserve in, um, Ontario she's from Shoal Lake and she had to come to the city to get her education because she wanted to play basketball and she wanted to have as many opportunities as she could but she still had to leave a lot of her family behind and it was still incredibly scary because a lot of people who live on reserve that's all they know. And so it's very difficult. It's incredibly difficult to navigate because if you imagine the lack of resources you have there and then you were come to the city and you are just surrounded by flashing lights and crazy things and a lot of different people and scary things and exciting things, you get really overwhelmed very easily. Um, but this crisis has just highlighted really what the problems within our communities are many different reserves, many different communities do not have clean running water. They do not have affordable housing. If they do have housing, most likely it does not have water. Heating is a lot of issues. Like, when I speak about things regarding the reserve, I am speaking from an outsider's perspective. I've never lived on a reserve. I've been on I've reserved maybe once. I think I went to a powwow a couple a couple years ago, but you know, it's I'm still speaking from an outsider's perspective due to the fact that I've had a lot of issues with my indigenous identity and I do not have the family connection involved. You know, my mother didn't have it either and my dad is non-indigenous. So I kind of walk around feeling like a question mark at times, but I have friends and I have elders and I have mentors who who have coached and helped me through a lot of different things. But once again, like I am speaking from an outsider's perspective when I speak about the reserve, but I know probably more about it than the general Canadian. There's this, there's an idea that reserves are dirty and mismanaged and we you know kind of just live in filth which for the case of a lot of them that's not untrue but it's not due to our own mismanagement i would say it was due to corruptness it's due to selfishness being greedy whether that be by the appointed leaders which are appointed by the canadian government or lack of resources implemented in the first place It's really just highlighting what our problems have been and what the problems that we have been crying about and screaming about and begging for help from the government has been for years. You know, COVID-19 has been devastating to many different people, but it's terrifying thinking about the fact that if even just one person, one person were to have COVID and go into their community, that could literally start a wildfire And people could die at a very rapid rate because it's indigenous people think of communities like families, their families, their community and their communities, their family. Those two are kind of interchangeable because it's so big. Indigenous families are so big and full of love and warmth and kindness, but it is also it's that's also dangerous compared to someone who doesn't really talk with their family or doesn't really go out a lot because we are kind of always there for each other. And it's very, that just opens a lot of doors when it comes to disease. But yeah, I, I, I'm I'm sorry. I couldn't give you like a personal perspective on that one, just due to the fact that I am displaced from my own and, um, Like I said, I have an outsider's perspective on a lot of different things, but I've seen how it's affected my friends and their stress levels of wanting to protect their communities but really not being able to do anything about it. Because, you know, it's... if When you want to meet with an elder, you go to them for guidance, but you can't meet with an elder in person at this time because, you know, you don't want to accidentally give a disease to one of the possibly only people left in your community who speak the language or the only one who has teachings, because teachings, it, 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 it's really its really hard. You know, it's, we're nothing if not perseverant.
0: That was, again, very detailed. Thank you for that. But, uh, yeah, we're going towards the end now. Um, so this
1: podcast is mainly for students. So now you have the time and space to tell them whatever you want. So what would you like to say to them in like one, two, three sentences? Oh, okay. Um, I would say to research the indigenous people of your area. That's the first thing I would say. The second thing that I would say is look deeper into your history and not just what your government would tell you. Because um, you never know what someone might be covering up. Because I think that you, for me personally, I think you should always question authority, but that's just me. And third, I would say research your identity, understand where you come from, what your grandparents went through, what your ancestors have gone through, how everything in the world and how those little things and how big things have shaped the people who made you and how that should affect you. I think that's very important is trying to understand where you come from and what you are made of. Okay,
0: very strong words again. Um, And just to end it, we would like to tell you that we think in your activism, you're doing such heroic work. You're a hero to well the world. And um, we would like to ask you if you could choose a superpower, any superpower. What it would be.
1: Okay. Uh, if I could have any superpower, I think, okay, this is really weird. I just thought about it now, but I think it would be the opportunity, like have the ability to know what can make someone else laugh. Really just having the ability to make any person that I meet laugh and feel a little bit of joy.
0: That is extremely beautiful. Thank you again for taking your time twice and for this amazing interview.
1: Thank you. Honestly, not a problem. I really, I I, I need time. be themselves who lock their wildness and their craziness down in knock sales. all these girls are liking their bodies trying to be someone else they fuck the fashion industry fuck Gucci, fuck Chanel this goes to all the girls who were told they too small too fat, too intelligent too thin or too tall this goes to all the boys that were told they too short too weak, too sensitive to man up and gross balls you're pretty but too insecure hot but too immature cute but aggressive nice yes but too impressive thanks for the analysis but who asked for your approbation? do we really need to tick your boxes? fit your expectations? fuck the system and its patriarchal motivation the same system That makes money out my menstruations To all the single mothers Who spend their lives in exploitation Your determination Deserves a fucking celebration Hold your fists high All my women and my queers Don't be shy No more worries, no more fears Hold your fists high No more shame and no more tears Till we die